Welcome to Seed to Scale. We're four investors with backgrounds as founders who met at the engineering school at the University of Pennsylvania. Tim Young. Nahal Mehta. Hadley Harris. Vic Singh. We started ENIAC in 2009. With more than 80 years of combined experience building our own companies. We now lead seed rounds and bold founders who use code to create transformational companies. Starting a company from the ground up is really hard. In this podcast, we'll be having conversations with some of the most interesting founders, investors, and influencers. About the ins and outs of building an early stage company. We talk about it all. Funding, growth, and everything it takes to build a lasting business. Hi everyone, this is Tim Young, founding general partner at ENIAC Ventures. For today's episode, I'm speaking with Jeff Richards, a good friend and great mentor. He's the managing director of GGV. But it's just, you know, it's one of the things that's just different about entrepreneurs from other people. They just, they, they just believe they're going to land on their feet and figure something out. As a two-time founder with more than 13 years building and operating his companies across the U.S. and Asia, Jeff joined the world of venture capital with a wealth of firsthand experience. Today at GGV, Jeff focuses on enterprise, cloud, and consumer internet-based brands. His investments include Hilltail Tonight, Flipboard, and he's been involved with Opendoor, Domo, Square, and Wish. He currently sits on several boards, including Boxed, Brightwheel, and Tile. Okay, Jeff, as a seed A and B investor, you enter um, boards at different levels. And as when an entrepreneur raises a new round, they have all of a sudden a whole new set of expectations. And that first board meeting is always really impactful, I think, when you get in and you have a new board member and you realize that what got you to where you are now is not what's going to get you to the next round. And I think there seems to be some universal um, issues that, that founders face and those kind of quantum along the journey of their business. Any thoughts or advice to um, seed A and B founders would, I think, be really valuable? Yeah, I, I think the, the hardest part as a founder is to sort of step back uh, from the day-to-day grind and figure out what those phases look like. And this is where I think a, a good seed investor or a good seed investor board member can be helpful in helping you think this through. But like you said, at the seed stage, you're just in survival mode. You're like, hey, can we get product market fit? Can we? Can I build out an initial team? Maybe it's can I recruit a co-founder? Um, can we get our product out there and, and will people actually buy it or use it? And you start to see that happen. And as you get traction, you start to think, okay, maybe, maybe we're starting to get to a point where we could raise a Series A. As you head into that Series A fundraise, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of people tell you no, but you hopefully get one who tells you yes and you, you bring that investor on and now you shift in a new mode. And the biggest difference between the seed and the A to me is you've got to start building out the team. At the seed stage, you're scraping, you're clawing, you've got probably some, some junior level folks on your team. The biggest shift that we try to encourage Series A companies to make is to start to build out that VP level team. And it's hard. You're going to get it wrong a few times. It takes a long time to recruit those folks. You've got to have a, a real strategic process in the way you're thinking about going after them, whether you're using search firms or referrals or whatever. But the biggest mistake I see founders make is they come out of that seed phase, they raise that Series A, and then they don't kick into high gear on building out that team. And six or nine months later, they're sitting around and they've still got just one or two new folks that they've added. And they haven't really made that push to build out that world-class team that's going to help them then 
elevate the company into a, a new level of uh, a new playing field and then actually go raise that series B in a year or two. And, um, you know, part of that I chalk up to just kind of PTSD of having been in startup mode and not having the resources to hire great people. And part of it, I chalk up to them not knowing that that's what they're supposed to go do next. And then the third part is I just, I don't think they know how to go do it. And so part of where we can add value as board members at the seed and the A phase is to help, help them figure that out, whether it's through introductions to our talent team, introductions to mentors, introductions to other CEOs who've been through that phase. But man, you, you've got to hit the ground running in that series A phase and start to build out that team because guess what? The bar is even higher at the series B. When somebody comes in to look at potentially funding your company at a series B, there's no magic number on revenue or users. You know, People will say, oh, you've got to be at X million dollars of ARR, which is fine. It's a great data point, but it's not going to get the deal done. What they're really looking for is, yes, do I see enough data on the run rate side or the user side to show me that there's something really working here? But then as I look across the table, they say, is, is this a team that I think can build a big company? Because remember, at the series A, maybe you're talking about a you know, 15, 20, $25 million valuation at the series B, you're talking about twice that. Maybe you're in the 40, 50, 60 pre. That means your investors coming in thinking, hey, can I make 10X on my money? Can this be a four or $500 million company? And if what they see across the table is a group of people that are fairly junior and have never done it before, that's a hard argument to make. If they see that you've made a ton of progress on building out that management team and it starts to look like you've got the components of a team that can scale, they're going to be excited about it. And they're going to be leaning in. So but remember, that whole phase from seed to series B could all happen over the span of, you know, two years, three years. So if your lead time on hiring people is six to nine months, man, you better you better be kicking it into high gear as you head into that series A phase. And I, and I just think that's a hard thing to get ahead of. And I know you've seen that as well. Double clicking on that, I think one issue that I've seen um, between the A and the B is, you know, to get to the A, generally, you're trying to achieve product market fit. Your it's you know very in the trenches, very product oriented, sales oriented, and then from the A to the B, and certainly from the B to the C, you need to start firing yourselves from jobs. You need to start scaling. You need to start building a team. And I think, particularly depending on where you are, if you're based in the Bay Area, there's a lot of competition for mm -hmm. people at that level that that you can trust and you can really hand over a big part of your business and have them run with it independently. So I've been. Um, at this point, coaching when I when when an A is a foregone conclusion, um, and it's really we're just optimizing for for you know who's going to be around the table and you know what the valuation is going to be and, and what's the size of the round going to be. I try to just get that that process going early. Um, you know whether it's you know whether it's through searches or just maybe starting with the founders network and just trying to get some candidates lined up um, as soon as possible because it, it's it, it's tough when you you know, raise the A and then you want to have this team in place to start utilizing the money, but it, it can take, you know, six to 12 months to find a good VP of sales, VP of marketing, VP of eng. Um, so yeah, any, any thoughts, um, any thoughts or advice on, on that, that issue specifically? You know, my advice to founders is try to get somebody at your seed stage, who's going to take an active interest like you do, um, who's empathetic to the team building and, and, and pieces of the puzzle, because like you said, it takes a long time. And I think we as founders, always underestimate how long it's going to take to hire talent. Um, and it's just absolutely killer. I mean, you, you go into, you know, oftentimes they'll say, Hey, yeah, I need a VP of marketing, but I probably don't need it till Q1. So I'm going to put off that search until December. And my feedback is like, well, if you need them in Q1, you need to start that search in the summer 
because it's going to take you six months to find that really great candidate and hopefully convince them to join your team. So there's a couple pieces of the puzzle that you just uh, outlined. One is, you know, one, having an awareness of what the organization looks like and what you want it to look like going forward. So I find that very few companies at the Series A stage actually have an org chart. And my feedback to founders is always, hey, if you don't have an org chart, you probably don't have a realistic view on who you need to hire and when you need to hire them. So put together an org chart that shows what your organization looks like today and what you want it to look like six months from now and 12 months from now, because that'll help you sort of map out a game plan to realize the holes that you have and start to put some real action plans around each of those roles. The second piece of the puzzle is, is how do you then go recruit that talent? And one of the things that I think is hard to understand as a founder is recruiting in the Bay Area in particular has gotten really fucking hard in the last five years. And so you have a lot of founders saying, well, yeah, it's hard, but I'm going to go out and fight the good fight. And, and, and I'm encouraging founders to say, hey, dude, it's really hard. And so a couple things I'd encourage you to do. One, start early. Work your network, start early, engage your investors, really get aggressive because it's going to take you longer to find those superstars. And two, think about building teams outside the Bay Area. We believe as a firm that building teams outside the Bay Area, Bay Area is going to become, if it hasn't already, a core competency of the best companies. And then, and then the last one obviously is you know, being realistic about compensation and what it's going to actually take to recruit some of these folks. Um, because a lot of times at the seed stage, you're in this kind of scrappy mode. Everybody's kind of taking one for the team. They're underpaid. And you sort of move into the Series A and think you're going to use that same approach to get people to come join your mission. And what you don't realize is you may be targeting somebody who, you know, has a family, has kids, uh, is making several hundred thousand dollars a year and can't really afford to take a huge pay cut living in the Bay Area. And so that's an adjustment for founders as well. By the way, they, they don't, they're not as transient, right? So once you recruit those folks in, they, they have a higher standard of living than they do in the Bay Area. And so they then aren't as inclined to jump to the next hot thing because they, they say, hey, I like where I'm working. I like the team. I like the company. Compensation's reasonably in line. And I can afford to live in a great house in a great neighborhood with great schools. So that's the other side of that is we, we find that the, the, um, you know, the retention rate is higher in those regions as well. Any advice to founders on how to get the most out of their board and then advice to board members on how to support the company in the best way possible? <laughs> you know, I guess from, from my standpoint, one, I, I, you know, I was a founder. Uh, I started two companies. I ran, I ran two companies. So I always try and approach the conversation in the board meeting and outside of the board meeting with, with a very empathetic ear to the way the founder is thinking. And I think part of your role as an investor and a board member is to, to be empathetic and to listen and give feedback and advice, but also to be somebody that encourages the founder to, to aim high, to hire great people, to, to push the envelope in terms of their thinking. I, I, would, I would say a couple things for founders. One, um, you know, Jeff Epstein, who I've sat on a board with and was the former CFO of Oracle and DoubleClick, uh, and I just think is phenomenal, said this on a, on a conference call we did the other day. He said, look... CEOs should look at the board as a world-class set of resources at their disposal, right? And they should be thinking, how do I take advantage of these folks that I have around the table who essentially, you know, work for me? And I think a lot of founders go into it thinking, oh, I work for the board uh, and board meetings are kind of a sales pitch and, you know, I'm going to kind of only show them a certain set of information. But the best CEOs and the best founders that I see are very transparent and then they put their board to work 
um, you know, whether it's asking them for customer introductions or uh, introductions to new hires or to be involved in the hiring process, uh, you know, board members can be phenomenal at helping to sell candidates, uh, whether it's your investor board members or your independent board members. So Jeff, another uh, issue that I've seen a lot of founders deal with is board member behavior. And I've seen a lot of like, there's the, you know, former entrepreneur board member that did it one way and in his or her mind, that's the only way that it's done. Um, and then there's also wealth effect. I see where, you know, there's, huh. there's people out there that have made, you know, so much money that it's hard to kind of get them to engage in the same level of someone who's young and hungry. And then there's also, you know, a bit of ego from time to time that, that gets in the way, but uh, you have way more experience than I do. And I've learned a lot being on boards with you. I'd love to hear any, any uh, stories or anecdotes on that front. Well, I think, I mean, so part of the, so there's, there's really two parts of the question, which is one, what, what, you know, what are you looking for in a good board member? And two is how do you make sure you get the right people around the table? Cause it, you know, it's a long-term relationship. You're either going to have a lot of fun working with, with that group of people, or you're going to be super fucking annoyed every time you have a board meeting. <laughs> and it's a hell of a lot more fun to have a good group of people around the table. Um, so the, the biggest thing that I encourage folks to do is to spend some time with that folk, that person who might be an investor in your company. And I'm shocked when I meet founders who have one meeting with us and say, Hey, we're looking for a term sheet next week. And I kind of look at them like, well, are you going to take on a new investor after only having met them once? Because that person is going to be, you're going to be spending a lot of time with that person over the next five to seven years. So I think that's a, you know, I think there's a little bit of a pendulum swinging in Silicon Valley where we're getting away from that model. Um, but man, over the last few years, I saw a lot of that, you know, super short fundraising processes where they would then add a board member that they barely knew. And if you're a if you're a strong founder or a strong CEO, you have you're in control, right? It's your company, it's your investor syndicate. You have an ability to decide who's going to sit around the table with you, whether that's you know picking the right person inside the firm for you or just picking the right firm. But I, I encourage people to spend the time because I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting in a board meeting two or three years down the road and I'm you know sort of looking around the table and then I talk to the founder afterwards and said, hey, how did so and so get on the board? And he's like, oh well. You know, we met him at the A and he came in aggressively and gave us the highest price. And, you know, he's kind of a pain in the ass, but we tolerate him. And I'm like, well, dude, you, you had a you had a chance to make a different choice back at that moment if you'd taken your time. So it's hard when you're scrambling, you're hungry, you want somebody to say yes, somebody says yes. And, you know, it's hard to then take the time to get to know them. But we do see founders that do a lot of reference checking. They talk to founders that, that those board members have worked with. They talk to folks that, you know, ran companies that didn't go well. And they really do their homework because, man, it's just such a difference. And it's not its, it's not necessarily going to change the outcome of your company. You can have a jerk on your board and still build a huge, successful company. But it's a hell of a lot more fun when you do it with somebody who's who's good to work with. Do you have any uh, highlights for um, bad behavior? I'm sure you've seen a lot over the years. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I was on a board. <laughs> I was on a board of a company where one of the board members inherently in every board meeting would just leave the room. And, you know, the first few times you sort of assume maybe he's just got an issue with his bladder or something, <laughs> but, but then you'd see him walking around outside the building on a conference call. And finally the founder was just like, dude, you either, when you join these board meetings, you either sit in the board meeting and pay attention or helpful or don't come, but don't come to my board meeting and halfway through walk out to go do a conference call. You're, you're just, <laughs> it's offensive. Um, another substantive question that I confront um, routinely and a lot of my teams have challenges with 
So at some point between the the seed and you know the A generally, maybe right after the A, you start hiring your first sales, your first sales team or your first salesperson. But when in your mind or any tips, advice or about <laughs> hiring the first salesperson, um, what he or she looks like, when do you do it and what do you look for? Well, this is a, uh, a, a huge challenge. Um, and even for repeat founder CEOs that have been doing this for a decade, it's hard. The advice that I tend to give founders is look for somebody who can come into your organization. And you're talking about, I'm guessing you're talking about companies that don't usually have 10, 15, 20, 25 people when they're starting to think about hiring a, a director or a VP of sales. And, mm-hmm. um, and so what I, the feedback I tend to give founders is number one, look for somebody who's got the intensity and the hunger that's going to work their butt off and, and can close deals because in that stage, you're still in a mode where you've got to close business. And what you don't want to do is err on the side of hiring somebody who's really just a quote unquote manager and wants to come in and build out a team and, and not, not be active in selling. The second one is look for somebody who's a good cultural fit um, because they're going to end up hiring a bunch of people. And the last thing you want to do is bring on somebody in that role that builds a sales team that just culturally doesn't gel with the rest of the company. And so looking for somebody who's a good cultural fit is, is important. And then the third one is just somebody who will be responsible and accountable. Um, I think one of the things you mentioned earlier, as you're a CEO and you're trying to build out that executive team, you, you want to be able to delegate. You want to be able to offload responsibility. You want to be able to to know that things, certain functions in your company are working well without you having to personally be involved. And, and so hiring somebody in that senior sales exec role that can, can run things effectively and you trust is, is it's hard to find, but it's important. And then the last piece of advice is just assume that that person probably isn't going to be running sales in two to three years. You know, if you get somebody in that can run it for 12 to 18 months, you're doing better than most. Um, A lot of times, as you know, you hire someone in three to four months and you realize you hired the wrong person. It's just hard. So don't be afraid to get it wrong. Um, There's a high percentage chance you will get it wrong. And that's okay. And your investors should be okay with it as well. We all, we all, we're not going to get it right 100% of the time. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest part of the job is, is um, transitioning people effectively and quickly. I think it's a skill you got to learn and it's emotionally it's just very draining part of the job for sure. It's so when I, it's super draining and it's where good invest good advisors and board members can be helpful, right? Because you may have an instinct about somebody who's not working out. Uh, and you know, if you can go to a board member and say, Hey Tim, love for you to meet with with, you know, John and give me your feedback on how he's doing, it's just good to get a second set of eyes, right? Which then goes back to your point earlier about recruiting in people to your board and, and as advisors that can be constructive and helpful to you. Great. So we do a quick, we call the lightning round where we ask a few questions and we just ask you to kind of answer off the top of your head. First is what's the best part of being a venture capitalist? Uh, the best part of being a venture capitalist for me unquestionably is just the ability to work with amazing people that I could never hire if I were running a company. Um, and my, one of my examples is Mike and Cass Lazaro, who I backed at Buddy Media and just are incredible, incredible, incredible people and incredible entrepreneurs. But 
you know, you could never hire them to work at your company. And so I just, I look at that as a very binary thing where if I was running a company, zero chance I could hire Mike and Cass, but I had a chance to work with them for several years as an investor and it was a thrill. What's the number one reason early stage companies fail? Team. What's the most challenging part of your day? Uh, for, well, I'd say two things. Uh, one, one is unique to our business. One is just venture capital, just time. I mean, it's just literally, you know, back to back to back to back. I don't think people necessarily appreciate that. You've got, you know, we meet, I probably meet 200 to 250 companies a year and I'm trying to then manage the boards that I'm on and be responsive to founders and do proactive outreach. And so, you know, most days it's like eight o'clock to, you know, last night I got home at nine o'clock after being in New York. So, just time management. Um, and then the second one is just travel. We're a global firm. And so we travel more than most. And it's, uh, I've been gone three of the last four weeks. It can be a little taxing. What was your biggest miss as an investor? Oh, I've had a lot, you know, and it's funny. I tell people who aren't a mentor, it's one of the hardest things about this business is, is that is the misses because you just go, Oh my God, we had a chance to invest early. You know, the series A at Airbnb, the series, um, you know, we had a chance to invest in Twilio. We had a chance to invest in Ring Central. We had a chance to invest in um, um, Uber. You know, even Uber at a billion, and we didn't do it. Mm-hmm. So, man, they hurt. They really hurt because you just those companies are so exciting when they break out, and you just want to be a part of them. And and you know, you, in many cases, you had very logical reasons for not investing, but man, you look an idiot like an idiot down down the road, and it's so frustrating. What is the best and worst piece of advice you received recently? That's a good question. I mean, I think <laughs> well, best piece of advice from my wife who told me I needed to diversify beyond blue shirts. <laughs> um, I have the same inflection. Right, right. We're, we're attracted to blue shirts. The, the worst piece of advice I've gotten recently, um, I don't know, it's a good question. What would you say to that question? I'm getting a lot of advice around what to do in the coming kind of, you know, I'm, economic winter mm. in terms of fundraising. And I think, you I mean, everyone has, uh, there's a lot of doomsday scenarios. And I think a lot of people are being reactionary to that. And I, I think here at ENIAC and kind of the, the mentors I've had over the years are generally trying to, you know, hold the course through the bull and the bear markets and try to be consistent and just looking for good teams, looking for good businesses throughout and try not to react too much to kind of the macro markets. Well, that's definitely, if I look at GGV, it's one of the things that's made us successful is our best fund was a 2000 fund when the market completely went to crap. Uh, but GGV stayed consistent. Um, our second best fund was, you know, we were investing right in the middle of 08, 09 and we made some of our best investments in that time window. So that, that mantra of be consistent, obviously you'll change valuation and you'll change some sectors and things like that. But um, I think it's one of the things that we've done well as a firm is, you know, when the market freaks out, we, we continue to look for great entrepreneurs and continue. And we tell our, our LPs, even in a down market, expect us to be putting a pretty consistent amount of money to work, um, which is hard to do because everybody's freaking out around you. And, you know, some of your companies aren't doing well and you're dealing with a lot of challenges and trauma, but um, those can be those can be when some of the best companies get built. So before we close, I, I was hoping to get some of your your anecdotes out. <laughs> so I'm just going to list out a few of my my favorites. We're not in a car on the way. We're not 16 on a car on the way to Tahoe, running out of gas. Right. Kind of just 
giving people a little nudge on, you know, let's uh, let's up our game a little bit here. Um, I think that any, any other think, like I was hoping to prompt some of those, but any any others yeah. that come to mind? They're I think they're classic. Yeah. Well, what I love about that is number one, you you can kind of laugh, right? I mean, a lot of times you're having a challenging conversation, and when you use an anecdote from your own life, um, you can laugh. Um, one of the stories that I tell often is is because I and I think it's helpful for entrepreneurs to hear it is. You know, after I, my, my first company I started in, in 1997, raised $130 million in the dot-com bubble. We were supposed to go public in 2000. We didn't get public. The company essentially blew up and I walked away with nothing. And I went from, I was in the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and running this multi-hundred million dollar company. And when I first met my my girlfriend and, uh, and then when I asked her to marry me, uh, I met her, I had met her dad once. Uh, and you know, I was kind of this high flying entrepreneur that had done well, and or at least in his mind had done well. And, and then by the time we got married in 2002, I was essentially out of a job. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he gets up and gives a toast at the wedding where he's, you know, he basically tells that story and says, you know, I, I love Jeff. He's a great guy. When I first met him, he was this high flying entrepreneur and now he's unemployed and I wish him the best. <laughs> and, and all my buddies are like, dude, this guy's killing you. Um, but I think the, the, the reason that it's an important story for me is there's a certain DNA that you have to have as an entrepreneur where you don't fucking care what people think, right? You are going to build a great company and land on your feet and figure out a way to make things happen, regardless of how many people tell you no, regardless of how many people doubt what you're doing, regardless of how many VCs turn you down. You just, you believe in what you're doing. And, and so what was funny to me about that experience was it had never really occurred to me that in his eyes, I was this 30, you know, 30 year old guy who was unemployed. In my mind, I was like, Hey, I'm just gearing up for my next startup. And I think that's one of the magical things about Silicon Valley that I love. And, and it's, it's an attitude that's pervasive here. And, you know, it's one of the things that's just different about entrepreneurs from other people. They just, they don't, they just believe they're going to land on their feet and figure something out. And then, man, you know, you learn so much from raising kids. I mean, I have, you know, I've learned so much from my kids and I've learned so much in just trying to be a dad. Uh, and it's, it's actually, I know it's cliche, but it's pretty similar to building a company because when you have that first kid, there's no training program. Nobody puts you through some sort of, you know, class and says, Hey, you need to learn for 12 months how to be a parent before you have a kid. And all of a sudden, boom, there's the kid. And, you know, running a startup's the same way. Most of the folks we back are first time founders, probably 85% of the people we back are first time founders. There's no founder training. Um, they jump into it and they figure it out. But um, yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan of people who can tell stories and use anecdotes, and because I just think it helps bring things to life, and also just you know helps people understand that you're a human. Like you know, when I go home at night, I got a seven year old boy who doesn't really give a fuck what I did all day. <laughs> he doesn't care, right? Um, or my, you know, I, I'll never, I have another great story where I, I was trying to convince my 14-year-old, now 14-year-old daughter, but she was about eight at the time, and I was trying to convince her to take classes in coding. And I was like, you know, Riley, it's, you, you would be really valuable for you to learn how to code and build technology. And I said, you know, look at Mark Zuckerberg. Like, look at how successful he is, and don't you want to be like Mark Zuckerberg? And she looked back at me, and she said, I don't know, Dad. Do you want to be like Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> 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 and I was kind of like... That's 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 pretty valid question. Well yeah. said. Well, thanks again. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate your time, and uh, look forward to continuing to work together. Thanks for having me, and and definitely look forward to doing more with you and with Eniac. 
Thanks, Tim.